my 11-year-old daughter also, I asked her that I was going to be chatting to you. And I said, what do you want to ask Julian? And she said, if an eyebrow is transplanted to above the lip, is it still an eyebrow? But <laughs> 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 well, let's not... <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that, that's another half an hour that one well, uh, <laughs> we'll hang on to that one what a great question though <laughs> that is a very good a very, very good question um, it is and it isn't you're listening to the Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice And welcome to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers, a show designed to spark your curiosity, creativity and imagination, and not-so-serious business podcast. And Simon, good morning to you. What's caught your curious eye this week then? John, what's caught my eye is my 20-year artwork, which I've been, I guess, unable to finish. And it's unusual because every artwork always finishes like there's a moment in time you go no that's done you wouldn't want to touch it you hang it on the wall ready to rumble so you wouldn't want to mess with its essence but this one has gone on for 20 years first exhibited (laughs) in 2005 almost sold but then I've played around with it since then and I've finally I guess worked out why it's never really worked because I made it a scale I did another smaller painting and I tried to do a bigger version of that, but here's what I did. I didn't scale the elements of it, so I've been sort of painting a rough design uh-huh. to start with, and the design's never been quite right, so I've been trying to put <laughs> lipstick on the pig. And it's about 80% lipstick, but it's never got 100%. And today, or the day before, I thought, that's it. I've never scaled this properly, so the bigger dimensions are still on smaller version of the older picture. <laughs> That doesn't make any sense. But. No, I was going to say, you're losing me. I don't know when the judgment is it's reached 100%, but I've got DIY projects that have gone on for 20 years, but I haven't had art projects going yeah, on for 20 doesn't. years. Yeah, it doesn't. It <laughs> doesn't. However, the joy of playing with it is always enjoyable. However, I don't think I'm ever going to reach it. I've just got to, it's done. Kill the baby, I think. <laughs> What about you, John? What's caught your eye? What's caught my eye this week uh, has been artificial intelligence and chat GPT, which is, I know, has been rumbling on for quite a number of months now. But I saw a good one, which is uh, there's a Japanese tech company now that uh, makes personalized AI clones so that you can continue to speak and interact with your descendants even after your death. So uh, I was quite intrigued by that, that maybe I could still, after my death, get together and argue over Sunday dinner with my family. So that interested me. I then then thought, oh, chat GPT. And so I put in, tell me about the Occupational Philosophers podcast. And chat GPT said, I'm sorry, I'm not aware of a podcast show called the Occupational Philosophers. (laughs) It it goes on to say, it's possible it may not exist, so it's relatively unknown. Oh, so smackdown. It said, if you provide me with more information, I might be able to help you. So I did. Eventually, I, I then said, look, is it any good? Uh, it said, if you're interested in exploring the relationship between work and philosophy, or if you're looking for insights and inspiration for your own career development, the Occupational Philosophers is definitely worth checking out. So there you go. Some form of intelligence thinks we're okay. <laughs> well... As long as uh, Chat GPT does, we're good. Exactly. We're good. Now, just I'm interested in this notion of you continue the conversation from the grave. Is that based on your what are they crawling for that? Like, where are they getting that 
information well, from. Well, that's it. So you have to upload as many videos and images and audio samples ah, of yourself okay. as you can. So right. you put the, all this stuff in and then it sort of reconfigures or, or, or maybe it learns from that or adds to it. Yeah, well, it does. So, yeah. uh, so it'll look like you and it'll speak in your voice. And it says, the founder says, it'll even think like you. Well, there we go. There Ooh. is a deep, deep Ooh. question to ponder. <laughs> but not for now. Speaking of deep questions to ponder, John, this is a guest episode. What's our favourite? Who is the curious cat we have in this week? Well, Simon, I can't tell you how excited I am, if not a little nervous I am today, as we uh, we might be out of our depths, to say the least. We have a genuine philosopher as our guest, someone whose passport would say philosopher under the title occupation. I don't know if they do that anymore. <laughs> but this individual is not only a philosopher... He's a journalist. He's an author of over 20 books about philosophy. He's a co-founder of the Philosopher's Magazine. Uh, he's written on numerous international newspapers and magazines. He writes on the subject of philosophy, atheism, secularism, the nature of national identity. And uh, an interesting one there was in 2012, he was commissioned by the National Trust to be philosopher in residence for the White Cliffs of Dover. Uh, where he's required to reflect on those chalk cliffs and their significance to national identity. So I was intrigued by that. Um, his books, a myriad as I say, but some of the ones include How the World Thinks, A Global History of Philosophy, Freedom Regained, The Possibility of Free Will, Should You Judge This Book by Its Cover, The Duck That Won the Lottery, and 99 Other Bad Arguments, The Pig That Wants to Be Eaten, and 99 Other Thought Experiments, and What's It's All About, philosophy and the meaning of life and just published this month how to think like a philosopher which i'm enjoying immensely and is why i'm particularly excited to be joined today by julian bergini it's an absolute privilege welcome julian oh hello john hello simon thank you for that very um generous introduction now julian what's caught your eye this week from uh yeah the world of the curious and imaginative and or creative or none of the above yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, actually, I've been going back to stuff from about in my life in the sort of the uh, mid 1990s because I had to co teach a day course on Derek Parfit's philosophy of personal identity, which is my PhD subject. And um, there's a new biography of Parfit, which has just come out by David Edmonds, which is excellent, by the way, not yet published. Uh, so I was going back to thinking about things that I hadn't thought about a lot for a very long time. And, and, one of the things I was thinking about was to do with the nature of reductionism, but maybe we won't go down there. Um, but also, it's just really interesting. If you read a biography of a philosopher, you're always struck by this uncomfortable fact that it's painfully evident you cannot entirely distinguish the personality and the character of the philosopher from the philosophical conclusions they come to. Philosophy is supposed to be about arguments and evidence. It's supposed to be, you know, rational and we're supposed to come up with arguments that everyone would find equally compelling, and it just ain't so. <laughs> so it's, it's difficult. I don't, I'm not too pessimistic about that because I don't have an inflated view of how objective philosophy can be. I don't think this means that it's simply an expression of personality, but I think it's difficult for philosophers to be honest about the extent to which their personal leanings enter their thinking. And of course, that's not just true in philosophy. It goes for all sorts of things. Whatever we're thinking about, we're not thinking about it as a kind of a chat GBT with a, you know, no <laughs> underlying dispositions or whatever. Um, we're always thinking about things as particular individuals with our own histories, personalities, desires and inclinations. 
And it's one of the challenges, I think, of trying to think better, which is to both acknowledge that, but also try and allow for it, particularly if you're trying to understand what other people are saying, who, who may be very different from you, trying to get into their heads. So uh, that, that's been on my mind. That's the kind of thing that pops up into my mind quite a lot, though, I think. And uh, for you, Julian, with your own work that you do and the thought that you give to different topics, are you able to step back and recognise whether or when your personality preferences or like are, are coming into play into what you're thinking and considering and putting forward as an idea or a hypothesis? I think you'd be overconfident to say I can always do that or and or, or can always do it to the optimal degree right it's something you, you try and be aware so I'm, I'm aware of it now how successful i am at allowing for that and how successful i am at spotting it i suppose i can't know myself because you know if i'd failed i wouldn't have noticed <laughs> um <laughs> but you know i do kind of try i mean so for example i know that i'm not being actually like Derek parfit strangely enough never been enamored of, of formal logic and i don't have that kind of mathematical mind and so I am aware of the fact that there are some people who like things really sharp, neat. They want philosophy to be kind of be like maths. I'm not temperamentally like that. Now, of course, I've got reasons for thinking that's a mistake to think philosophy can be like that. But because I'm aware that fits rather neatly, perhaps with my own prejudices and, and personality, I suppose I have to sort of try a bit harder to think, well, you know, what is it about this approach? Is this approach really worth thinking about? Particularly in moral philosophy, there's some very bizarre utilitarian arguments. So utilitarians basically, you know, think that the right action is that which produces the best consequences and wrong actions have lower consequences. It's all about the consequences and nothing to do with anything else. And just the other day, someone alerted me to someone making this kind of argument around animal welfare. So take this for an argument, right? If you think the right action is the one that produces the, the greatest outcomes, it is better to be a meat eater who donates $200 a year to the US Humane Association, who with that money are going to save about 200, 300 animals or something, than it is to be a vegan and not make that donation. Because as a vegan, you don't the number of animals you save by not eating them is significantly less than can be saved by donating $200 to the American Humane Association. So you've got this idea that if you really care about animals, you know, it's better to eat them and and donate money, like almost like offsetting. And now that seems to me a, a really strange, bizarre argument. But the point is, I'm aware that I have to think about well, what would lead someone to that conclusion. And I can kind of see the, the line of thought. And I suppose I have to sort of force myself to take it more seriously than I might do and not just go, these people are crazy, which is, yeah, that's the way we often want to think about things, isn't it? it we say, these people are crazy. It saves us the effort of thinking about what, why obviously intelligent people are coming up with things that look crazy to us. <laughs> I told you this episode, Simon, was good, we were going to get deep and meaningful very early on. <laughs> and Julian is not disappointed there. I, I'm okay, right. I'm into this. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, where, where, just for people out there listening in, Julian, where are you in the world today? I'm in in Bristol, in southwest England. It is our morning and your evening. Yeah, and it's a nice morning for a change. I could see you glancing out the window there. What can you see out of your window? Well, actually, today I can see Wales. Which is exciting, isn't it? It's nice to see another country. I mean, I don't need a passport to get there, but it is a, it is a distinctive country. And I also, I'm very lucky with, with a view here, actually. We, we're very, very lucky. We've got a, a view of a spire of St. Mary's Church, um, which is a, a lovely spire, a very kind of tall, thin, elegant spire. So it's a very nice view. 
which is you don't always get in a city. Yeah, inspiring stuff. Yeah, you, you'll take that. I can see another country. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, well done. Now, our next little piece is called Dinner Party Introductions. And look, this is always, imagine you're at a dinner party and you know, sometimes a conversation could be a little bit stilted and that type of stuff. So we've been thinking we want to mix up those questions you might have a, you know, at a dinner party outside the, hello, what do you do for a living? So we're sitting down, even though we have just asked you that to some extent, we're, si- we're sitting down, we're having a few glasses of wine and you know, we're engaged in a bit of conversation. So the first question is, what's giving you joy at the moment? Yeah, okay. That's a nice question. Um, what tends to give me joy are, are little things. There are lots of them. I mean, honestly, there's a, there's a bakery near me which makes the, the most fantastic croissants. And if I go there and sit down and have a croissant, I have a little moment of joy. It's as simple as that. Um, <laughs> I am a bit of, you know, gastronomic stuff is a constant source of joy for me. You know, I think we have three at least three opportunities a day for a little bit of joy, and I do try and take them. And, and also, <laughs> you know, I, I just little things that you see. I mean, I like walking... But even, again, walking around the city, sometimes you just see a, a nice bit of sky. The sky is amazing, isn't it? And it sounds a bit bland to say it, but the sky, the sky is constantly changing. And so often you look at the sky and you're like, oh, wow, you know, it's like a photo, you know. So I think I get most of my joy from those those little everyday things, to be honest. Which is quite encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the bigger things in life, I mean, obviously there's love and friendship, which is also a sort of source of joy there. But you know, sort of big events in life. I mean, very rarely does something happen which is, wow, amazing. I mean, you know, I'll celebrate an event if something good happens, but really the event is an excuse to go and get that little bit of joy from the celebration rather than the celebration. Yeah, you, why, why do you have a celebration? It's, it's because you've got an excuse to get a little bit of joy. If, it was, if, if all the joy came from the event, you wouldn't need a celebration, would you? Just thought about that. I, um, I love <laughs> croissants and sunshine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I think I think other thing that big big things can give you satisfaction and senses of achievement. There are lots of things you can get from those bigger things, but but I think joy tends to be found more in just the little the textures of daily life. Just following on from the croissant question, do you sit down and have a coffee with that, or a cup of tea, or just the croissant by itself? <laughs> coffee is an essential accompaniment. I think if you don't have the coffee, it's not quite as good. I think it's like the contrast yeah. thing, isn't it? Again, so this is a good thing about for, for a lot of um, foodie pleasures and drink pleasures. It's it's about having a, a, a contrast, and it, the contrast yeah. brings things out. So here's my top tip: people can give up now. They don't need to know about philosophy, but in terms of like you know you know you know this craft chocolate stuff, which some people think I'm not spending you know fourteen dollars on a bar of chocolate. I, I don't know the exchange rate. I'm just imagining it's around that I, I have got into this stuff you, you don't eat it in huge quantities right so it's not as extravagant as it seems Maybe. and it's also like people say the same with wines if you take these fancy things the thing the trick is to try two of them side by side and that really brings out how distinctive the flavors are if you have just one by itself you don't have a comparison you go well that's interesting but is it really worth it so anyway mm. should we talk about food all day Talk about food. I know no, it's good. I, I like the coffee croissant <laughs> combo myself. It's literally my favourite thing to eat, <laughs> my favourite breakfast in the world. So yeah. I, was just, uh, I was just checking in to see where your inspo come from. But we're not here to talk about croissants per se, are we, John? Well, no. my next question then was uh, with this is, do you have a hobby that you lose yourself in? Julian, what do you, what you, you do? Yeah, playing tennis. Uh, I don't know if it doesn't count as a hobby. 
I would like to say there's music. There's a, the life I haven't lived is one in which I play a musical instrument well enough to lose myself in that. Maybe one day I will get there. But no, it's tennis, playing tennis. And losing myself in it is a good way of putting it because, you know, I, I've never meditated. Do either of you meditate? Yeah, You do? Yeah, yeah. Try, increasingly so, yeah, but still trying, still learning. There are lots of benefits of meditation. I do know about that. It has certain things. But also, you know, people who do mindfulness-type practices and the mindfulness literature will also tell you that, you know, mindfulness isn't something you can only practice in formal meditation. And for me, playing tennis is my kind of meditation, really, right? Okay, because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to focus exclusively on on that ball and hitting it and not think about the score, not think about technique, all that kind of stuff, and just focus in on it. And it's a bit like, you know, in meditation, you're trying to come back to your breath. So you're focusing on one thing and it's your breath, if it's that kind of meditation. I know there are different types. And of course, it's not the case that people achieve that all the time. You're, you wander, you come back, you wander, you come back. That's what you're trying to do. And I think tennis is very similar. There's one thing I'm trying to focus on, and I'm trying to focus everything else out and it's difficult to maintain that concentration you start thinking about the score you start thinking oh my god i made a mistake and you try and come back and then for those periods where you can sort of just really focus in and and do it it feels really really nice and good and it's and it also takes you away from everything else so tennis is my is my meditation i say and i don't say that flippantly i think it's true yeah no i agree is there something or someone that inspires you now what inspires you at the moment? Something or someone who inspires me now. I did have an answer to this. Not Outside what it coffee. Was. I, thought about it, I thought about it and then I've forgotten. Someone or something who inspires me now. Um, I must say, I've, I, I sometimes sort of read these questionnaires. People say, who's your mentor? Who's your inspiration? Or whatever it might be. And I, I never really find that, unfortunately. I think, to be honest, so, so here, here is my answer, which is, might seem like a cheat. I'm increasingly of the view that we overplay in our culture individuality. And the very fact that this is a very natural question to ask, and it gets in these author Q&As in newspapers, you want to identify individuals who have been a help to you as an individual. And I actually think that what inspires me more is what is achieved by the fact that we work collectively and collaboratively, right? So it's not about one person who's so amazing and special. There are amazing individuals, don't get me wrong. But actually what inspires me is the fact that when people put their minds together and work collectively, they can really work things out in a way that no one of them, even two of them, kind of do it to, to do alone. So I sort of think about you know things like the way in which the research on vaccines during the pandemic was incredibly successful and I think about ways in which people in Ukraine are really sort of like fighting and struggling to sort of keep their their country together and the ways in which some communities in some parts of the world has has welcomed refugees the ways in which people are working all over the world in incredible conditions organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières you know so I I find that collective resilience and intelligence more inspiring than any particular individual. I'm reminded of uh, one of the attributes in your latest book, Julian, which is think for yourself, but not by yourself. And again, I might talk to that later. But Indeed. I've, I've even made a fridge magnet with that on it. Look, there's my fridge ah. magnet, which um, 
Hey, hey. I would send you one, but it would cost me more to send it to you than it would be to make. I might as well. It'd be cheaper for me to get fifty made in Australia. Oh, always interested in some merchandise, Julian. We need some merch. We love our merch. Yeah. Um, I'm slightly scared to ask this next question because it's what big question are you wrestling with right now? And I'm realising as I ask that of a philosopher, we could be gone for days. Uh. <laughs> well well we could do well okay the big question that there's a big question which i'm grappling with not today but at the moment my current project main project is a, is a book the next book and it's a it is around food we're back to food i'm afraid um i have written one book on food and philosophy already um in fact i've written two in a sense so i wrote, wrote a short book on the film babette's feast which is really i don't know if you know that film a fantastic film as a film which I think has a sort of a philosophical, almost religious core to it, in which food plays a major part. But I've been I've had this a sort of an intellectual as well as a gustatory interest in food for a long time. And I'm a member of something called the Food Ethics Council in the UK. Right. And food systems are incredibly complicated. You know, I mean if I say what is the food system, well it's kind of everything to people talk about this from farm to fork. I mean, think of everything that goes on between that. That's all part of the food system. And I'd go further than that. I think that, you know, the food system continues <laughs> within us, right? Our bodies are part of the food system. We're in interaction with all this. And it's very interesting. Most of what's written about it tends to be highly partisan. It's a very sort of, it's one of these issues which seems to have divided people. So you'll, you'll hear people who are on the organic and the agroecological wing basically getting cross about any you know, nasty chemicals. It's interesting the, the the phrase nasty chemicals because it seems like the chemicals can't exist without the adjective nasty. What about if they're not nasty chemicals? Good question. On the other hand, you've got people who kind of just dismiss all of that stuff as a load of backward looking nonsense and we've just got to tech our way out of our problems. It's really complicated and it does involve a lot of philosophy, ethics and philosophy. And so the, the thing, the question I'm sort of looking at at the moment is a really big question is which if you look at how the food system and elements of the food system across the world and across history and you've seen how it's worked and not worked, are there general principles? Is there a kind of a global food philosophy, if you like, which can help to guide us to a future in which uh, we have a sustainable and healthy and equitable and humane food system so that's a pretty damn big question but the reason i'm okay doing that even though it's one of those things it's like how the world thinks my book about global philosophy the way in which our knowledge institutions work is that these days we people have to be fairly narrow specialists and so that means there aren't people joining the pieces together so it takes someone like me who's not a specialist in any particular aspect of the food system to go and talk to the people who are and join the dots so, I, you know, I don't have any illusions that I'm the world's foremost authority on food. Of course I'm not. But that, I don't have to be. What I need to be is someone who can help bring together the expertises of all the different people who are. So it's a really exciting project. I'm really enjoying it. I'm behind. Of course I am. Have you ever spoken to a writer who says I'm, I'm ahead? But um, the next yeah. six months is going to be very intensively focused on that. Very intensively, yeah. Well, I think that leads us into our next question, or the final one of our dinner party. And I've really enjoyed uh, the Shiraz with broken, not broken, with broken bread and drunk Shiraz together. Uh, how would you describe what you do? And are there any intersections where what you do sits in the middle of a few different things? 
Yeah, well, I try to keep that simple, really. <laughs> I tend, you know, I'm a writer. I mean, I'd say that. I'd say I was a writer. I mean, the point is I don't have to bring in philosophies of what I write about, okay? So if I just say I'm a writer, people say, well, what do you write about and who for? So writer stroke philosopher. But I think in a way, I think the writer side is more significant for me in a way. I think if I, I could imagine... There are lots of things I find interesting and I'd like to find out more about and I like writing. You know, I could imagine a point where if someone could say to me, look, you can either do philosophy for the rest of your life but not write, or you could write for the rest of your life but you're not allowed to write about philosophy anymore. I mean, obviously, that couldn't be too rigid because philosophy overflows into everything. I would definitely choose to be a writer rather than a philosopher, if you see what I mean. And very prolific writer you are as well, Julian. Well, I'm a full-time writer. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, people say that. Sometimes they, I think they do it with a bit of suspicion. Um, somebody said to me once many years ago, you churn, you churn them out, don't you? And I, go, I don't think, you know, I don't, thank you. You know, I know what you mean, but I don't churn them out at all, actually. I work quite hard on them. But I, it's, it's, I'm a full-time writer. A lot of people who write books are not full-time writers, okay? Mm. Um, they're, they're doing other things. They're, they're lecturing, teaching, or they're broadcasters, and that takes a lot of time. So... I am a full-time writer, so I, A, you know, should be more productive than most people, and B, I, I have to, because guess what? I've got to pay bills. <laughs> yeah. The reality kicks in and bites hard. Yes. Yes. Now, The Occupational Philosophers was born of the desire to explore the interplay between curiosity, creativity, and imagination, and some philosophy thrown in. And look, you've very helpfully, you've written on all of these topics and much, much more. So we sort of want to invite you to give a little of your insight as a real philosopher on these themes. John. Yes. So firstly, the question we're dying to ask you, Julian, is does curiosity kill the cat? (laughs) It can do, isn't it? I think it's really interesting. Curiosity. By the way, you'll notice my most overused word is interesting. I put it into almost every sentence, which is interesting. <laughs> now, uh, does, <laughs> curiosity. No, it's not a frivolous question because, of course, we praise curiosity, and it is important. Absolutely, of course, it is. But you know, you've got to direct your curiosity. You've got to make use of it. Everything is fine. Time is finite. And I find that it's difficult to come up with any kind of principle on this because on the one hand, and I have this problem myself, okay, so I'm the kind of person who will just find myself asking questions about things. Oh, really? Is that right? Blah, blah, blah. And there's a sense in which that can be slightly indiscriminate. So sometimes I might find myself asking these questions about something which absolutely doesn't matter at all, (laughs) right? But on the other hand, I think that if you think you already know what is significant and what is significant, then you may be missing something. You know, a lot of breakthroughs have been made by the fact that, you know, and this is important for business, right? In a business, there are always certain assumptions that people make about what matters and doesn't matter. And often what improves things is someone comes along and notices that something that people didn't think was important was really important. 
I, I hesitate to think of an example of this, but you know, you can imagine a, a food manufacturer, for example, you know, <laughs> sticking with that theme. And I have no idea about this, but it may, it may be that, you know, it wasn't thought important. You need, you need a vegetable oil. It doesn't matter which one it is. And then someone discovers, actually, if you use a different vegetable oil, it does something transformational to the process. I know it makes things tastier, last, better. And we go, oh, God, you know, we didn't, just didn't think of that. And it seems obvious. So in, in a way, having a kind of curiosity which attaches to anything can be good. But still, obviously, in practice, you've got to make decisions at some point about how far you're going to take this. If I'm, for example, so someone's coming to do something to our our toilet later, right? Okay, and you know, and I've got you. You have to decide what kind of toilet you want. Now, if I allow myself to get too curious about that, I could spend days <laughs> researching flush mechanisms and all that kind of stuff, and I'm not going to be focusing on what's most important to me. So I don't know. It's, it's yeah. a delicate balancing act. I think, broadly speaking, I don't think there are any algorithms for anything strictly important in, in life. But the good rule of thumb is that we should allow ourselves and encourage ourselves to be curious about absolutely everything. But we should be careful what we decide to then devote time to pursuing in that curiosity. You have to sort of make it, and we sometimes have to make a decision quite early: is this curiosity worth pursuing? And because if you if not, you are you're not killing the cat, but you're 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 killing something. You're killing time. I'm just thinking there's an obvious wordplay there, uh, Julian, that as you described the curiosity you'd have in trying to choose a particular flush for your toilet, that you'd become a flush officer rather than a phil officer. Very good. What's your rule on puns? Bad puns must be edited out or they must be kept in. For <laughs> We've got a ratio. We're only allowed three per hour. <laughs> <laughs> right following on from curiosity and the cat is the drive to be creative an attempt to become immortal i hope not otherwise it's a waste of time isn't it you know i mean it's interesting that i mean they're, they're, again people have these big theories about everything's being driven by fear of death or striving for for immortality i think it's one of these theories one of these kind of explanations that it's hard to do anything about if you're convinced it's true, then there isn't any evidence that can tell you it's, it's false. And also, the, you know, there's elements of truth in this, you know. But I think that if that is what is leading a lot of people to sort of be creative, then I think they should probably work at coming up with, with better reasons. Because in a way, you know, I think that ultimately the kind of worldview I have is one which there is no immortality. This is the only life we have. And how to live to make the most of that isn't straightforward, right? So some people say, oh, it's easy. So you're not immortal. So get on with life and enjoy it, right? Well, hmm, that doesn't really necessarily work straightforwardly either because just getting on and enjoying it can leave you feeling empty or hollow. So how is it that we live this short time in a way that makes it seem full and meaningful and engaged? And I think creativity is one thing that can help us to do that. Because it has to be, uh, there's this very sort of, it sounds glib sounding thing. So when I was still young, a fairly sort of young teenager, I was into the science fiction of Ray Bradbury. Any Ray Bradbury fans in the room? Right, okay, great. Yeah, I remember, yeah. Ah, yeah. right, no, I loved him. And um, the, the Martian Chronicles, the Martian, the Martian Chronicles. Chronicles? Indeed, Chronicles, yeah, yeah. indeed. The Martian Chronicles was turned into a very low budget TV series, but it was kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was there was a thing there, and it's, it's, it's you know a bit of philosophy, but very, it sounds very simple. But they they meet these Martians who had somewhat evolved to a point where they could escape bodies and just be pure life force and everything. 
And they kind of like had ceased puzzling over the meaning of life. And their thing is, life is its own answer, he said. Yeah. It sounds a bit sort of like, you know, something you might put on social media and it sort of sounds profound. You go, yeah, but what does that mean? <laughs> but if you flesh it out, I think, yeah, that is, that is kind of true. You have to find it there. And the point about creativity is, well, certainly sometimes if you're immersed in someone else's exceptional creativity, you know, it is this, in those moments, life is its own answer. You don't have to ask, you know, what's the point of being alive? Again, I remember a very early experience with this. So I went, I never get, I never saw Pink Floyd in their heyday, unfortunately, slightly too young. Too young is not a phrase I use very often these days. But I did see them in their sort of <laughs> first, first reunion concerts, tour, and they were at Wembley Stadium. Usually a terrible place to see anyone, but Pink Floyd filled it. And when they came out and they were doing, they started with Shine On You Crazy Diamond. I'm sorry if you people don't know Pink Floyd, but just tr- trust me on this. And it has this sort of like very moody, atmospheric keyboard thing. And then David Gilmore, one of the world's most wonderful guitarists, just for his tone, he, it starts with this single note. And this note comes out over the stadium. And it was like, in moments like that, you go, oh, you know, people say, oh, I could die just now. That's an expression people use, isn't it? I could die right now. And it's true. You feel complete. You feel like there's nothing missing from life in those moments. And similarly, if you're engaged in a creative practice, even if you're not very good at it, perhaps, you know, when you're engaged in something that's creative, then there's no question about, well, what's the point of it? It's engaging you enough to provide meaning. So I think it shouldn't be about trying to escape, find immortality. It should be about engaging more deeply with our mortality. And is there something, you know, that moment you had in that Pink Floyd, when that note came out, that moment of, whatever that is is it creative bliss or you in someone else's bliss or is there a, how would you label that what would you call that if you had to give it a, a type of name or does it even have a name coming from your world in philosophy i see i, d- I don't know see the point is that this is, this is i think language struggles here so a lot of people talk about there's a lot of bit of a fashion to say that one thing that we look for because you said immortality some people say more generally transcendence. We're looking for those moments or experiences in which we rise above ourselves and the moment and achieve some kind of sense of union with something greater than ourselves, right? And this is sort of described as those moments of, of transcendence. And I, I find that not quite right in a way. <laughs> for me, it's more the, so the opposite of transcendence is imminence. The, the imminent is what is here and what is now. And I think there can be experiences of the profundity of imminence. And I think you get this a lot in a lot of traditional sort of East Asian thought, particularly Japanese thought. It's about trying to really engage with this, what is here. And it could be in the practice of something like calligraphy or flower arranging. You're not trying to have a union with something greater than yourself in a way. You're just trying to connect more with, with this, but in a way that is more profound and more, and more meaningful. So I think it's about trying to achieve that kind of, there's a sort of uh, almost religious sense of imminence and reverence for, for here and now and this and nature. It's not about trying to connect with something above and beyond. I was, I was thinking as you were saying that, uh, Julian, I was reminded of two things. One was the study around ecstasy or ecstatic moments, which might be slightly different. Maybe that's trying to have a that's a play on just transcendencies, but uh, more importantly, I think in the words of Fatboy Slim, right here, right now, <laughs> yeah. that would be that would be if we could boil it down, we'd just say, look, Fatboy Slim was right. 
Yeah, what with Fat Boy Slim yeah, say? Yeah, I mean, up to yeah. a point. I mean, I think it's quite, in a sense, I do think, I do think, I've got to admit, I don't think that we've quite got the language of this right because there is a sense in which in those moments you're also feeling a connection with something more than yourself. You're not just feeling isolated. So I think we struggle to describe this kind of properly. But I think we can kind of know what we mean, perhaps, yeah. I told my children that I was going to be talking to you today, Julian, and I said, Julian's a philosopher, and have you got any questions for Julian, knowing that you could get an answer from a philosopher? And so, so as you just said that, my 14-year-old son said, are we in one big bubble of human existence, or are we all in our own bubble, with eight billion bubbles all separate from each other? Or is it like a Venn diagram? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And then I, I just thought, as you said that, is the transcendent thing, is that then where you realise you're in one bubble of big shared human existence? There you go. That's where I wanted to get to. I knew there was something coming. That's a, that's a very, very good <laughs> I question, I could see it brewing it? in your I, head, I, Okay, John. <laughs> I love the question. Now, funnily enough, it does remind me that there's, there's only about one or two diagrams in my book, How the World Thinks, and one of them is a diagram <laughs> in which answers that question really, right? Ah. Because I think I think the point. Okay, so there are different. We think differently at different moments. Sometimes we feel more one one way than the other. So it's not the case that we always think in certain ways. But in different cultures, different ways of thinking are emphasised. Now, I think in what we call the Western culture, of course, Australia is an honorary member of that, even though you know geographically it's far away. We're at Eurovision. You're in Eurovision. <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> the, the dominant way of thinking foregrounds we're all in our separate bubbles, right? So we, our individuality, we mentioned this earlier, talking about, you know, who are your heroes, who are your whatever. Individuality is emphasised, and it seems like if you want to understand society, so society is made up of individuals. Of course, they relate to each other and they interact, but the, the fundamental unit of society is the individual. And then there are sort of like these sort of highly sort of mystical ways of thinking, which is we're all part of the one. So in most orthodox Indian philosophies, we sort of say that's ultimately our destinies to return to the supreme Brahman, whatever it might be. But interestingly, the Venn diagram one, you see, I think that's the more fruitful analogy. So it's, it's a brute one. It's a crude one. And this actually comes back to what I was thinking about with the Parfit thing I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Because the point is this: that yes, we are individuals. There, are th- there, are, I'm, you know, we're doing this through one of these newfangled web things. We're all got our own image on the screen. We are three individuals. But the point is, and this is a let me see if I can get this across in a way that that makes sense. You can't even make sense of what it means to be an individual if you don't think about how it is related to other things and other people, right? So. You're on the screen, you are, I'm looking at the moment at, you know, John. So there's John. But there can be no John unless there are parents, guardians, brothers, sisters, neighbours, colleagues, citizens, the natural environment that you live in, the, the culture you live in, the books you read, the culture. You know, you can't be separated from all those networks of relations. So although it's true you are an individual, you can't understand what it means to be that individual without thinking about how it relates to everything else. So when, when we think about ourselves as just these little bubbles totally separated, that's not realistic. At the same time, if we imagine ourselves as just part of one big bubble, that's denying our obvious individuality. So I think the, the challenge is to think of our individuality in ways which 
recognizes those those interrelations. And I hate to sort of give the same analogy again and again. So I think if someone listens to everything I'm on, they'll hear me repeat myself, but presumably they don't. Um, I, I always come back to, well, let's not let's take Pink Floyd this time, actually, rather than, a, I normally use a jazz band, but yeah, Pink Floyd is a band. And the thing is that people know the individuals in that band. Those individuals are incredible individuals. And playing in the band, they express their own individuality very strongly. You know, there's a particular, David Gilmour has a very particular guitar style. Roger Waters, when he's in his, his voice and Rick, um, what's his name's keyboards? I told you I was bad with names. Uh, <laughs> but they, they, what enables them to most express their individuality is the fact that they're in a band working together. And I think we tend to have a, a, a kind of a, a dichotomous view that individuality and the collective are intention. And ideally, they're not. And actually, I was thinking a, a minute ago, my God, this is what are business people getting out of this? Well, first of all, business people are curious people, right? So it's not like they're always having to think directly about business. But this is significant for a business. If you're running a business or any kind of organization, okay, you've got to think of, of the collective. You've got to think about the collective as a whole. But you've also got to deal with people who you know are individuals. And in a culture like ours, they want their individuality respected. And, you know, are you asking them to give up their individuality in order to serve the organization or have it work that way? Well, I don't know exactly how you do it, but what you should be trying to achieve is something in which actually people get to express their individuality by being part of the organization in a way that enhances their individuality rather than smothers it, all right? Because there are ways in which asking people to join an organization can end up getting them to suppress their individuality. But there are ways where it can enable them to express it like you do in a good musical band, right? You need to have the organization that does the, the latter, not the former. Otherwise, people just don't perform very well, they don't give their best, and eventually they'll just go away. That, we'll return to that topic, Julian, because I think that would be really interesting as we think about teams and organizations. Just before we uh, jump to the next section, actually, I must just say that was my son's question, which was very deep and profound. My 11-year-old daughter, also, I asked her that I was going to be chatting to you. And I said, what do you want to ask Julian? And she said, if an eyebrow is transplanted to above the lip, is it still an eyebrow? <laughs> 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 but let's not. <laughs> let's, that, that's another half an hour, that one. We'll, just, uh, <laughs> we'll hang on to that one. What a great question, though. <laughs> that is a very good, very, yeah, very good question. Um, it is and it isn't. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fudge answer. So, Julian, you've written a wealth of books, a few of those we mentioned earlier. But serendipity means that your most recently published book, which is How to Think Like a Philosopher, which is I'm reading at the moment. And it's, as I read it, it was like as a moment of enlightenment. It's the absolute sweet spot for this podcast. The idea that, you know, bringing some of the attitudes, habits, the curiosity, I guess, inherent in being a philosopher could improve the way we work as individuals and teams and in the organisations we're part of. So I thought we could explore that book a little because it's just, as I say, I'm enjoying it so much. So maybe a little introduction to the book about why you wrote it, who's it for and why now? Well, I mean, why I wrote it? When you ask authors why they write books and or and why now, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they often give you an overly simplistic answer, which which underplays the elements of you know serendipity, chance, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, I always have I have a long list of books that I would like to write at some point, 
which one gets written depends on timings, opportunity, circumstances. But why I particularly wanted to write this one was, I mean, sometimes I think a good idea for a book is one where you think, why doesn't this book already exist? <laughs> you know, it sounds like a, a good idea for a book. And annoyingly, funnily enough, I have to I have to confess this to you, that, you know, about two months before it came out, we discovered that somebody else is going to put out a book with the same title in about a month's time. Can you believe it? <laughs> oh. So the question, I was, we were right to think, why doesn't this exist? Someone else also had that thought. It doesn't look as interesting as mine, I have to say. So. <laughs> <laughs> it may be better. It may be better. Who knows? Um, but but it's a very different approach. That one's really looking at just sort of great philosophers in a kind of as a chapter on Plato. Well, um, but I think the the, the the other main motivation was this: that when people think about thinking skills and critical thinking, they do tend to think about certain sort of techniques and methods. Even though the from the philosophy side, it's all about you know deductive and inductive reasoning and fallacies and logical proofs, validity in the more sort of pop critical thinking stuff there again it's methods and tools mind maps and all this kind of stuff and struck me that you know in my experience or well my experience of doing philosophy and i've also interviewed and talked to a lot of philosophers that's one of the good things about doing what i do over the years i've come much much more convinced that a really important facet of good thinking are these kind of attitudes and habits if you like it's not just about the pure skills and so i wanted to do a book which i thought would draw upon i thought i had this sort of like archive of interviews with philosophers in which they'd said these insightful things or demonstrated these insightful things about how how to think i thought that i had i could put that together in an interesting way and i could help bring that focus back to the the attitudes aspect of it which i think is neglected so yeah it just seemed like you know the stars aligned this was that kind of book and who is it for well it is for every anybody who wants to think some people don't want to think so they can just sort of not do it. But if you want to think well, I think there's something to be hopefully learned from this, yeah. Now, look, every time we get together, we always like to think uh, through the lens of, say, you're part of an organisation or a business, or you might even be a solopreneur, you're just working at home. So we always like to think around looking through that lens of individuals, teams, which you know make up organisations as well, and also that space if you're in that leadership space as well. So, look, you outline, uh, you know, the 12 habits or principles which help us think like a philosopher. So, if you're, a, you're an individual, you're sitting at home or you're on the bus or the train or in the car listening to the podcast, if you're trying to flex your philosophical muscle, what's a good starting point for making that happen? Let me sort of get my – well, I mean, I kind of like – one thing I try and say in the book is that I think we're, we're very much drawn towards what we might call – you know, hacks. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we want things that are going to give us these cognitive shortcuts, help us through. And I, I think that it's the opposite. We want to sort of hack, hack away that, at the hacks and, and recognise that good thinking takes time. On the other hand, you know, we, it is helpful to have little mnemonics and things to help us think it through. And I have, a, a, in my summary, I sum up the sort of a process the, the, the first letters of the things I came up with happened to spell out Australia's finest rock band, ACDC. So there we go. But I also came across this thing <laughs> early on, which was like, you know, I kind of get the most fundamental stuff done first, I think. So, you know, if you are a person with a hurry, you don't finish the book. If you've read the first three chapters, you've probably got a lot. And I, I, so I have this sort of faffing about. I realised that I'd, uh, faffing about could be a thing, right? Faffing about, I don't know, is that a, 
a phrase you use in that's Australia. It, yeah. Right. I loved it. I loved it when I right. saw that. I thought, so oh, yeah. faffing. I'm what always faffing, faffing about. F- and I suddenly on, thought. On that, on that <laughs> note, I understand faffing for our Australian audience. What's faffing? Well, faffing about in, in, in English is generally sort of like, it's, it's when you're kind of doing everything and nothing, you know, you're just sort of like, I don't know, you're, you're, you're spending an hour moving things around your room and not really doing anything. So faffing about is like unconstructive kind of pointless sort of like time filling. So it's pointless activity, if you like. But anyway, but I've got a positive meaning of faffing, F-A-F. So these are the three things. They stand for facts, attention and follows, as in what follows. So I think if you sort of get into these three habits, these are the key three things. So first of all is just attention. The A is attention. I think attention is the most important thing in in thinking, right? It's not to do with the computer processor, you know, what the kind of things. It's you've actually got to get in the habit of just really stopping and paying attention to whatever it is. So again, for example, you know, talking earlier about how you can imagine that someone hasn't has taken for granted that something in the food manufacturing process isn't important and they think other things are important. What is it that enables people to spot things that are important that other people haven't spotted? They're paying attention, they're stopping and they're looking and they're thinking. They're not just sort of like allowing the normal flow of experiences to come in. They're looking with a curiosity and attention. And going, Actually, what's, what's happening there? What, what, are we do, what are we doing there? What, what, why do we do that? Why do we do that? And often there'll be a good answer. Go, okay, fine. But is there a better way of doing that? Paying attention. And in, in reasoning is the same because a lot of bad reasoning happens because our minds move on too quickly, right? So a typical thing, social media, you know, a new study has just come out which has shown that eating chocolate makes you much happier, more happier than falling in love. You go, oh, really? Well, hang on, just just pay attention. Have a look at that. Let me, let me look more closely at that. Mm. Oh, I see. So this research has, has been funded by the chocolatiers association of new south wales aha okay all right so you know it said doctor at the university of in the headline but you just pay a little bit more attention you realize it's dodgy so this thing stop and pay attention It, it sounds so obvious but because we've always got things to do in a hurry we don't do it and check your facts I mean, so often, you know, it's not about bad reasoning. It's just that the facts we're reasoning from just aren't correct or we haven't interpreted them properly. Sometimes someone throws a fact at you and you think the fact speaks for itself. It doesn't. I mean, I, I use the example of the book of food waste, okay? I'll give you a food waste fact. Well, what, what, what percentage of food is wasted? And what, I'll give you the figure, whatever it might be, 10 20%, whatever. Okay, hang on, what does food waste mean? So what does that fact actually mean? It turns out a lot of the time it means all the parts of the plant or animal which are not eaten, whether or not they're consumable. So the bones, for example, of an animal or you know the inedible bits of a grain is counted as food waste, right? So, so in order to understand what, what it means, in order to think properly about food waste, you want to know what the phrase itself means. So check the facts. And then what follows is the other thing. This is, this is the, the more traditional aspect of philosophy, uh, often we just get led along and, and we think one thing follows from another. And you just get in the habit of asking, does that follow? Does that does that really follow? So, for example, what about if I was to give you statistics which showed you that people who eat organic food live on average five years longer than people who don't? That's a made-up statistic, by the way. It's not true. Let's say there was such a statistic. <laughs> yeah, all oh, right, so I ought to eat more organic food then. 
what does that follow? You see, we assume that's what follows, that if people who eat organic food live five years longer than people who don't eat organic food, it follows we should all eat organic food. Well, it doesn't necessarily follow for the simple reason is that it may well be that if you look at who eats organic food and who doesn't eat organic food, the people who eat organic food are generally uh, wealthier, they have better health care provision, they, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, eating organic food may be strongly correlated with the things which make people live longer. And it's not actually because they eat organic food or not. It's just that those things are correlated. So again, have a saying, does this follow? It's quite important. And again, you can, you can see how people, if you don't ask that question, I mean, in a organizational context again i'm trying to bring this back to to businesses and organizations <laughs> you might see the point so a, t- a typical thing would be look we spend x dollars x thousand dollars a year on this so it doesn't seem to be necessary so let's not spend it and then we'll we'll be better off by x thousand dollars well you've got to be very careful before you reach that kind of conclusion because sometimes the benefits of a spending are, are not remotely obvious I mean, I think that people found this a lot of the time where they, they try and strip out certain kind of what they see as frivolous benefits for for staff. You know, we, do, we don't need to. Why are we spending $2,000 a year on coffee beans for our staff room? I mean, th- this is premium stuff, right? Why don't we just get a bag from the supermarket? Okay, I've saved money. Fantastic. Well, before you know it, you go down that route and instead of like coffee breaks, we talk about joy being little moments of joy and whatever. People go to their grim room and have their utilitarian drinks. Morale goes down, productivity goes down. You know, you're suffering. You know, for, for the sake you think you've saved $2,000, you've actually cost yourself the business and half your staff. Uh, so <laughs> just be careful. Don't assume that what follows from what you found out is really what follows. Try and really think it through. So that's faffing. Facts, attention, ask what follows. I think that piece around uh, what follows is really, is uh, I guess an unusual piece for a lot of people to get their head around because there's very much, oh, if we do this, this will happen. End of story. Okay, move on to the next thing. But that, I guess, it's that ambiguity about what will be being okay with that ambiguity. Is that the right way to phrase it, or being open to what might follow? Or what's the if we were to. Yeah, yeah, there are lots of there are different ways in which things can follow. That's why I guess complicated, right? So sometimes things people think they follow as a matter of pure logic. The other thing is that most of the time when we're thinking about what follows, what we're really doing is we're, we're making a judgment on the basis of our past experience because this is how most judgments work, right? I mean, one and one equals two is just definitionally true. But doing this increases productivity is something that has been proven or shown by experience, nothing more. And the problem here is that 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 can be a trap. So we can be deceived by that. Sometimes, often, the things that have worked very well in the past are the things that are going to work very well in the future. Sometimes they're not because circumstances have changed. So you've always got to ask yourself the question, in this particular circumstance, what's the most important thing to attend to? The ways in which the situation resembles the past or the ways in which it's different from it, right? And you can fail on either of those two things. Many people have, have really screwed up because they've convinced themselves, oh, no, no, I know it hasn't worked in the past, but this time it's different. Circumstances are different. The world has changed. So I know people have tried it before, but things have changed. This time it will. And they're wrong because they're, they're overestimating the extent to which things have changed. 
And then people fall into the opposite trap of thinking, look, this has always worked. This is the way we've always done it. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to change now. And actually, guess what? The world has changed. The old model doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work anymore to send out your print catalogue to 2,000 people and expect them to turn up at your book festival because all those people... Actually, this is, this is a <laughs> genuine example. There's a very good book festival in the UK which ran for years on these old models. And what was happening was that each year, more and more of these uh, printed catalogs get got returned to sender because the recipient was deceased and they weren't being replaced by people who were getting their information by email, the internet and social media, you know. Again, as you were saying that, you mentioned it a couple of times, biases and assumptions play in so much into that kind of almost lazy thinking or sort of low energy thinking that individuals or teams or organisations can get trapped in. Is that... I mean, I know you've got availability bias and you've got confirmation bias. Is that one of the main constraints to good thinking that you would see in teams and organisations and maybe leading us into teams? What is it they can do to maybe start to tackle that? I think that you're right. You know, people, these, these biases are very well documented and people kind of know what they are. And so people know you've got to be aware of the problems of group think and, you know, and confirmation bias, hearing what you want to hear. But I think in terms of countering it, again, how do you counter these things? Because if you're not careful before too long, you've got kind of a long list of things that you just need to uh, remember. Oh, is this confirmation bias? Is it? Am I falling for the availability heuristic? <laughs> now, I think it's true that the more and more you yeah. think about these things, the more you practice spotting them, the more it becomes natural. So it can be useful. But I think underlying it, I can't remember exactly the phrase you use there, but in the end, it's the fundamental thing is a kind of, well, laziness is, is perhaps a, too pejorative way of putting it it's we're trying to we're saving ourselves mental energy it's right it's, it's hard work to think well about things it's hard work and the one thing no one should ever do is think they're good at thinking right so you know even if for, for philosophers that can be terrible too. think oh, i'm a philosopher i can think well so you know i can read the news and come to a very quick judgment about what's right mm, you're underestimating actually how complicated the world is and how um, your knowledge of the works of Immanuel Kant may not have equipped you with all the um, ins and outs of uh, latest developments in, you know, just-in-time supply chains. So, so I do think the, the main thing is just, you know, always recognising that it is difficult and that, that without knowing specifically, without trying to anticipate or guess specifically what it is which might be leading you astray, just to sort of stop and think, you know, am I being led to astray? And then the key clue is, you know, whenever you find yourself just drawn to a conclusion thinking yeah that's right you know that's when you should be checking am I, am I being too quick here so it is we're slowing ourselves down that's why i talk about you know thinking about getting not not about the hacks we need to slow ourselves down we need to introduce speed bumps as it were to our thinking to stop us jumping to conclusions i think at the end i say something like you know if you want to sum up the advice in one simple thing it's it's don't jump to conclusions. <laughs> and I think crawl to them very, very slowly on your hands and feet. <laughs> Building on that, I often like to think through this lens of a, a leadership piece and all organisations say we want better problem solvers, we want better creative thinkers, you know, et cetera. But they're also trying to balance profit, productivity, getting more done, boards, which might be very unsympathetic to more philosophical way of working. So if you're a, a leader, how might you improve the quality of thinking in your business? And I did, you said that's piece around, you know, speed 
slow down and speed up and speed bumps and how might you build this in or where where would you even start i guess from that if you're wanting to model that or lead what's your thought i do think it's very difficult and i think the one reason is that at the end of the day people are i think we have sort of certain ideas around productivity and efficiency which aren't helpful because i think what people really need to give themselves and other people is time right they need to give them time and that time the problem is if you give them the time it looks like it's time where they could be doing something more productive but this is an illusion. So here, and here is where I draw on, one of, the, one of the books I draw on is actually not a philosophy book at all. It's a very lovely book I thoroughly recommend by a guy called Mason Curry called Daily Rituals. He looks at the habits of thinkers, scientists, artists, philosophers, writers. How do they actually spend their days? And two striking facts about this are that despite the great diversity the vast majority did have some kind of routine, right? So the idea that great thinking just comes by being ill-disciplined and random and isn't true. You need routines. But what I found most striking was, I, I haven't done an actual database to sort of show these figures are entirely correct, but it seems to me that the most common pattern you could find was that people were spending between three to five hours on, on what it was they were primarily doing. And they had routines which allowed them downtime, time to just let things stew and think. They would go for walks, have lunch with friends, depending on what they did. I don't think this is remotely coincidental, right? And I think that the problem is that people don't give themselves all their staff time because that looks like they're being paid to do nothing. But if you're serious about getting sort of original thinking, you've got to have that time. So as a leader, if you're a leader, you've got to give yourself that time. And I think you should do something like, I think you should pay someone like me, for example. And people, <laughs> there's executive coaching, right? Executive coaching, it seems justifiable because it seems to be very, you know, it's about results and focus and it seems highly practical. So you can justify spending a lot of money and giving time to your executive coach. But actually... A lot of the time, what the executive coach is really doing is is just giving you encouragement, and you know, there's, there's not much science to it. I'm not did, saying they're not useful, but you know, it's actually a lot. Of, again, it's like going to see a therapist. A lot, and my wife is a therapist. So I'm not being rude about therapists. A lot of the value of therapy is simply that you have a, a, the time and space to talk about things with somebody else. And as long as it's not about the specific methods or tools, it turns out the, the specific modality of the therapist, what kind of procedure they use, is much less important than the quality of the therapeutic relationship. And, you know, uh, executive coaches, I think, are a bit like that. People are actually buying themselves a license for time to, to talk about things with people. But, you know, but why not do that with people who aren't just there to, you know, do that kind of more obviously practical facing thing? You know, if you want to, for example, I'm very interested in corporate ethics. And I think that what people serious about corporate ethics need more than anything else is a safe and confidential space just to talk things through with someone who has that kind of ethical background and expertise. Because if you do everything formally, you can't think openly, actually. You're, you're, you're constrained by what it might sound like and worrying about what it, what might get out. So I think people need to give themselves and others the time and the space to think with a certain freedom without the pressure to, at the end of it, say, well, what can I... Sh how, can, how has that improved my bottom line, right? The very heart of this was the idea that as we work with teams, we often found that they 
weren't curious, just weren't curious, weren't asking any questions. And it was then, as you say, there you go. So there's part the mindset, the desire to pay attention, but then there's also, as you described, I think you're right, it's just time. Give yourselves time to be able to sit with something, ask questions. I love some of the other attributes or the habits in there, you know, lose your ego. That's a big one. You've got to have those kind of time to discuss things without ego, with a common aim and the ability to define terms, watch your language, recognize the value in thinking together. So much in there that what you've described is what we observed as not being evident in a lot of the teams we work with. But yeah, time time seems to be the thing to put it the hard. Okay, so what do you think is the greatest reason for this? Because I think obviously sometimes a general idea might be that if you don't see a certain behavior being manifested in an organization, it's because people have learned that that's not a behavior which is rewarded or encouraged essentially you know and and people despite what people might say and this is the walking the talk thing people talk about oh you know we want to hear your ideas if that means that you send an email to someone and goes thanks for your idea great and nothing ever happens people soon lose interest in that but what's your perception about what 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 are the obstacles to this actually curiosity and questioning and thinking being valued in your teams Again, it would be for a whole range of reasons. One of the things might be the thing that's very much the zeitgeist, which is the concept around psychological safety, just the fear of asking questions or being curious in the first place for fear of how you might look, you know, the fear of being ostracized, all those things which would have you, you know, sort of feel like you're stupid or sort of going to lose your position or your status in some way. So that would be one of the things. Simon, I'm sure you see it all the time as well in when you try to get teams to be do create thinking and problem solving as well, isn't it? Yeah, there's, I, I think there's. We all carry a a very strong. I'm not creative piece from when uh, we were in primary school because we got a disparaging comment often about a drawing that wasn't 100% perfect, which is very logical if you're doing things that way. So we all carry a bit of. Well, I'm not the arty type because I can't draw realistically, which is you know very counterintuitive. Therefore, I'm not creative. Therefore, that is somebody else's. I'll just bat straight down the middle and, you know, not not ruffle anyone's feathers. And I don't have any confidence in my own creative ability. So for me, that's the, you know, I call it the creative ogre, which tells you to shut up, get back on your chair and, you know, <laughs> don't do anything outside of your comfort zone. So which ties into that piece around psychological safety. But yeah, if I could solve that, I could sleep well every night, but that's what keeps me up. Like people not embracing that creative peace which they have in themselves, which is like what you said. You know, you're, you're curious about the sky. You look, you're curious about the contrast between a, a coffee and a croissant, and you know, just embracing those little moments. So I always think if I can get more people to live a more creative life in whatever form that is, I can go to my deathbed and pass on to wherever we go with a very happy smile on my face. So. <laughs> that's my little rant over yeah <laughs> no well it's opened up so much and the last one there was a really interesting line in in the book as well julian which was around that losing your ego is people actually i would see it in teams sometimes are not curious they're not interested in other people's views they're interested in their own and you say be interested in changing your mind not just be open to changing your mind and there's that for me was interesting as you would say because I don't think people are interested in genuinely changing their mind, almost to be wanting to be proved wrong, seeking criticism of their ideas, you know, holding them up to the light. Part fear, but part they just they just go, this is my position, this is my view. And it's that lack of curiosity in someone else's perspective. I mean, it's understandable because, you know, our views and beliefs are 
part of our identity. Of course they are. And also things stand together. So, you know, it's like the dominoes. You know, you wonder, well, if, I, if I'm wrong about that, what else is going to follow? So I think, I think it's understandable why people are reluctant to change views. And it's also rationally justifiable not to change your mind every sort of like day according to what is most in front of your mind and seems stronger. So, you know, if you have thought things through, a certain slowness to change should be natural. But desire to change and grow should be important because I guess also I think most people would not like to think that it's part of their identity that they are set in their ways, fixed, rigid, unable to grow, right? So, I mean, if that's also what you want, then if you want to be the kind of person who who is genuinely open and can develop and change, well, you know, you, you've got to push yourself to really think of that. And, you know, it's not about, I can't point to sort of like, Damascene moments where I've done 180 degree turns on things. You know, it's more about evolution a lot of the time. You're changing things bit by bit. And sometimes that means that if you look back over 20 years, there might be something that you think very differently about. But in between, there may have been no dramatic turnaround. But, you know, we want to embrace that. It keeps life interesting as well. It'd be very boring if, you know, can you imagine that, you know, everything you believed at age 20, you still believed at age 70, if you're lucky to get there? I mean, well. Well, uh, that's true, but you know, I still think marmite tastes disgusting, and I thought that thirty years ago. Do you like Vegemite? (laughs) Vegemite. Yeah, well, there. Yeah, that's another philosophical argument. I'm not sure if we've got the space and time for. All right, and just to wrap us up, we're gonna have a, a rapid fire round. So, what's one thing you couldn't do without in your life right at this moment? I could, one thing I couldn't do without at this at the, right at this moment. Yes, this is not very rapid fire, is it? I'm I'm I'm, I'm busy thinking. Yeah, I'm, I'm being too <laughs> damn little. The point fire. is, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I suppose the point is, I have to do what I could I not do without. I mean. You know, the only thing I literally could not do without is food, air, oxygen, and and shelter kind of thing. But obviously, you d- you d- you don't mean that. Well, they're the obvious ones. But if you want to dig a little deeper, so I think the, obvi- the, obvi- the obvious, the obvious, the obvious one has to be. Can it? I mean, it has to be a person, doesn't it? I mean, it has to be a person. That's the one thing that I would uh, least. Yeah, after food and drink, uh, the person closest to me in my life is the one that I I feel I. I of course, I could literally do without, but yes, that's the thing I'd most not want to do without. Thank you very much. Right. Note to self, Simon, rapid fire and philosophers don't go well together. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> We're just going to have a, a slow burn, we call this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just around. Uh, so- Reload and shoot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Julian, we're building the Occupational Philosopher's Manigesto, where we take our guests' sort of most insightful things and we put those into a, a Manigesto that looks like a tree on our website, which people could go and see. But what one thing of all your learning should be included on our Manigesto? Well, I, I don't know what else is on it, so maybe this will be a repeat, but I, I would just say this thing about pay attention. It sounds obvious. But it isn't. It's actually, it's to, to really be as attentive as possible to whatever it is that you're thinking about. Yeah. Is there a book we should be reading other than your own personal library of amazing books that you have put into the world? 
Of course, of course, um, there are. You're looking for saying recent, right? Or, or timeless, or does it right, where, wherever it rolls? Oh, yeah. Could be the Bible. That's pretty old. Whatever, whatever works. <laughs> oh God, there's so many <laughs> damn things. This is just going to be very, very annoying. Um, just this is for radio. Looking at his bookshelf, going. There's yeah, a lot of I know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just looking for that. I mean, there, there are. So, what would be, what would be the one thing? Oh my God, it's too, it's too much. Actually. I'm going to tell you a book, right? I'm not saying this is necessarily the best book, but this is, a, I think, an eye-opening book. There's a book called The Book of Tea, right? The and book I can't, of tea. I wouldn't be able to pronounce the author's name even if I knew it. And it was written in 1906 by a Japanese person trying to kind of, and it's really trying to give the essence of Japanese thought, which is this combination of particular Tao and Buddhism through the lens of the tea ceremony. Actually, I think it's a wonderful book which gives you that sense of what we talked about earlier, how to live in that sense of deep connection with the now. And it is available in lots of English translations. It's actually free online as well. So the Book of Tea, it's really short and sweet. Lovely, lovely. And so a final question here, Julian, is um, let's imagine just in the twilight years, you've put down your ink and quill mm. and stopped writing and you're now being led into your retirement home by the nurse, and she guides you into the lounge and all of the other residents are there. How would you like to be introduced? She says, hello, everyone. This is Julian. He's... <laughs> he, 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 he wrote a few books once upon a time. <laughs> that will do. <laughs> ah, dear. Okay, so, Julian, what are you up to next? And we, I know you've given us a little bit of that project you've got coming out. Anything yeah. else on top of that? or? Well, I mean, you know, I have various different strands. I mean, it, and one reason I was curious about your podcast is that I, over the years I have done ad hoc sort of occasional things with organisations and businesses. I do some through a French organisation called Philonomist and a Dutch uh, company called Lecture who do these little one-hour lectures. It's always been very ad hoc. I'm, I'm curious to do more with businesses, but I, I think, and I'd like to do more, but I find that I think it comes down to that idea of, they understand they want something very concrete and practical at the end of it. And I don't go to them saying, I'm going to give you something concrete and practical and I'm going to improve your performance by X percent or something. And I think as a result, they, you know, for all their curiosity, they choose to spend their money on people who are going to give them a, an ethical audit with, with scores and numbers rather than a serious <laughs> think through. So I am, so I am, but I, I'm continuing to do things with organisations ad hoc here and there, and I'd, I'd like to do more, but, you know. Well, for my part, they're seri I can say they're seriously missing out. I think that your most recent book, How to Think Like a Philosopher, should definitely be on the Christmas list for our business clients, for sure. Where can we find you, connect with you, buy you drinks, virtually or otherwise? Yeah, okay. Well, I have a website, which is very imaginatively called julianbergini.com I'm on Twitter and my Twitter handle is Julian Bergini. I am on LinkedIn but I don't really tune in very often so if you want to connect me via LinkedIn you may not get a reply for like you know two months or something but there's a contact form on my website if you want to buy me a drink and you're in Bristol then just drop me a line through the website and uh, I'll see what I can do well, look, Julian, it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you so much for joining us on the show. And look, I think, John, you might have picked up his 
a little bit stalkerish when the, all that what he gave you and the, <laughs> all the big long intro he gave you. And if you find him hiding behind your fence, just shoo him away. So he will he will get the hint. But I think you know I think you're uh, you're, you're you're sitting in that lovely intersection of what we're trying to do with the podcast and just bringing that different way of thinking with a little bit of philosophy and just those you know those not a little bit of philosophy with us but a huge amount with your, your good self and just yeah i guess people to look at the world through a different lens ask great questions and i'm sort of waffling on john so how about you wrap us up yeah pay attention ask great questions but pay attention yeah absolutely brilliant thank you so much julian i really do appreciate you coming and joining us today i have so many more questions that i didn't quite get to thought experiments i'd love to to share and uh, chat maybe over a beer sometime if that's your tipple so uh, i'll try and catch you in bristol at some point indeed <laughs> lovely talking to you both really appreciate it John, as always, we like to, I guess, provide a little summary point on the end of that. You know, some of those maybe key takeaways and maybe some of our key insights now that we've had a little bit of time to reflect. What stood out for you today? Yeah, as ever. I hate the fact that I have to boil it down to three, but here goes. <laughs> that was great. I think you've got a, you've got a bromance, man. I've got a bromance. So, got, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is Samuel a really good West was my bromance I think you've got yours <laughs> yeah I've, I've definitely got to go and have a beer yeah got to do a thought got to do a thought experiment over a beer directed curiosity you know I've always come to the curiosity creativity imagination curiosity we need people to be more curious and just the way that uh, Julian just said yes but it's important how we're curious that it should be directed curiosity and what it means is that if we are going to be curious and ask questions we think about the questions. We say what needs to be asked. And I think that's a, a great way to then, as teams or as individuals, what needs to be asked and then ask that question with a focus. So that was the first thing. I love the fact that you'd managed to turn a nice word associated with meandering and doing nothing productive, faffing, and turned it into something mm. useful by way of a mnemonic to help us remember, which is, you know, uh, the be mindful of the facts, you know, you make sure you interpret the facts in the right way, you question them, that you're paying attention, first and foremost, and there's the middle one of the faffing, yeah. but that paying attention keeps coming back time and time again. And then the final one was follows, wasn't it? And what follows or does this follow? And it is a really interesting question to ask. It allows people to go beyond what they think might be the decision that they're coming to or the idea and actually just follow it down the line. And actually go, well, well, if we did do it like that, we could see consequences that maybe we wouldn't have thought of if we hadn't just sat with it a little bit longer. So faffing is great and allows me to, as well to say to people, don't disturb me, I'm faffing. There we go. Yeah. I love that word, faffing. It's like um, another great UK word, pants. Yeah. <laughs> but when you say that's pants, like we don't use that in Australia, but like faffing about <laughs> pants. There are. Anyway, pants. digress. <laughs> um, and then the final one, because of course you said, and we recognize this, that, you know, as teams and organizations to do this thinking well, they need time. And he came back to that thing yeah. towards the end and said, look, put some speed bumps in. And I love that analogy of just putting speed bumps in. Let's sit mm. on this. Let's let it stew. Let's come back to it. Let's reflect. All of those things are putting speed yeah. bumps in. To these conversations which can feel 
quite tense because again we're trying to get stuff done but uh, so important so i love the idea of putting in some speed bumps so how might we do that within the organization's room yeah, how about I'm you i'm going to use that speed bump well i'm going to use the speed bump analogy in two days time i think it's a really nice way in that slow down to speed up i call it rather than that boom let's solve it move on let's slow down to speed up maybe a fairly uh benign one i guess it benign's the right word collaboration yeah that came out again mm. and again like surround yourself with different people and what you can do when you have a uh, just you know i guess a bunch of different people working towards that common goal i love i love his piece with you I'm, I'm good at connecting experts together because i'm not an expert at these things so i really like that really nice way to think um even how a team is structured you've got like the experts but your expertise might be connecting those thoughts with that very curious philosophical mindset and uh, that goes to one of the habits in the book as well which is think for yourself but not by yourself and it is about engaging yeah. with people engaging with their ideas seeking criticism of your own ideas and looking beyond your own interests so it's a real key one so i do love the fact that he saw a lot in the collective solving things solving problems and moving things forward it was the collective efforts that were inspiring to him. And that was lovely to hear as well. And it's lovely to do something in a collective as well. Like we, we gravitate because we're humans. We, we group together because that's what humans do. Uh, the other one, that piece around, and we got a little bit sort of woo-woo, which I quite like. That's my space. But, that you know, <laughs> that transcendence, like when we do something greater than ourselves and you know, he heard that bit of music and he sort of went to a different space and you can get there creatively either others or your own i don't know i sort of i recognize that space i'm sure you <laughs> so do thought, Simon. what's that called yeah we've all <laughs> been there's you know there's many stories around that <laughs> where we've all been in that type of space but we'll leave that for the after dark show and i guess i also really liked that piece instead of maybe curiosity just pay attention i think that's a really nice way of also reframing because i talk you know every time i run anything or be curious but i think really a nice one would be just you know pay attention because in a curious way in a curious way so be uh, not just like not just listen listen pay attention that sort of you know, might yell at your kids at that but how do i pay attention be present and something in that real piece as well yeah so much i'm wow yeah so yeah. I, I think i've narrowed it down to to those three hey <laughs> whew, what a show there we go what a show so uh should we wrap up we'll just say to people out there to rate us leave a review it's always good to get those now we've had some more reviews which has been Have great we? so Hurrah. keep doing it because <laughs> it means uh a lot more people find out about the show and algorithms and all different stuff so i really appreciate those ones that have been coming these through are, these are real reviews simon these are real these are not yeah, chat real bot, reviews not chat gpt no reviews. there's one called chat gpt i'm not sure uh, <laughs> if what yeah I'm, I'm, yeah <laughs> so anyway uh there's a few more so just keep leaving them and easy <laughs> for us to say harder for you to do because it requires motivation etc but really good for the show but look as always john as always over the next week, over the next couple of weeks, stay curious, play more, have fun, and make life and make stuff. <laughs>